Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to talk about banks here. we got banks' earnings are going to be kicking off this earnings season in a few days. And I'm going to be really interested to hear what these bank CEOs talk about or how they phrase their business outlook in terms of a rising interest rate environment. Dave Ellison, he's a portfolio manager at the Hennessy Large and Small Cap Financial Funds. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here. We got that inflation print today kind of in line with expectations. We have rates rising both on the short end and a little bit now even on the longer end. How do you expect the banks to kind of talk about their business, you know, when we get these earnings calls over the next uh, week or two? Well, I think the uh, anyway, good morning but I, to everyone. Uh, I, I, I think when it comes to the banks, I mean, they're, you know, not much different happened in the fourth quarter that happened in the third quarter or, or the second quarter. So the earnings are going to be good. Credit's going to be fine. I think the, the story is going to be that loan demand is getting better. And that's going to drive, I think, the narrative for, you know, the rest of the year. Uh, rates are, are a factor, but, uh, you know, again, the Fed hasn't moved rates yet, and rates take a while to bleed into the margins or the earnings of these companies. So the impact of a rise in rates this year really won't impact us until the fourth quarter of next year or beyond, and I don't think they're going to go up enough to really make a difference to the demand for credit. So, uh you know, the most important thing here is loan growth. And if the Fed is going to back off growing their balance sheet and actually shrink it, then the banks have an opportunity to fill in that hole that the bank had, that the Fed has been filling for many years now by, by providing all of this credit and liquidity and start to use their excess liquidity, which will drive earnings higher. Will they make any money on that? I mean, if if there's no net interest margin out there, what's the point? Well, I think it's, you know, there is a decent margin out there now. You know, they're not lending at the 10-year rate. You know, most loans are going on at 25 to 3.5%. Don't I know of, it. Yeah, the cost of funds is not, you know, at 40 or 50 basis points. It's more like zero or close to it. So um, so you can make, you know, the, the profitability of the industry is very good here. It's not bad by any means, uh, having been in this business since the early 80s, believe me, things are really good right now. Uh, J.P. Morgan's making a billion dollars a month after tax. I think they're doing fine. The issue is how do they grow that and how do they get their multiple up? And actually, you know, for, for people that invest in these names, you know, what makes them go higher? And it's going to be loan growth. And, so, um, yeah, Dave, that's kind of where I wanted to go to. I mean, if, if I have a rising interest rate environment, steepening yield curve, presumably – um, as we go through the year here, um, do I want to own the big money center banks, the JP Morgans, the B of A's, the, the cities, or, or, or maybe the regionals? How, how do you think about that? Well, I, I, I think, you know, my view is the bigger banks are the place to be in general because they have the profits, they have the, in a sense, the FANG network effect, and they can make investments in technology and stay ahead of this sort of PayPal square or now block, you know, movement uh, against them in terms of taking share. So I, I you know, I favor the bigger banks because I think they have the opportunity to 
to grow loans, to make the investments, to stay relevant against this massive move of, of tech names trying to get into this business and, and, and take away the low-hanging, sort of high-profitable fruit that's out there. Do you – I mean, if they go out there and, and buy the technology that they can't build or don't want to embark on, do you then try and pick those names before they get um, taken up by the banks? I don't think that's going to happen as much. I think a lot of the companies, again, what I'm hearing from the bigger banks is they're going to build it in-house. They have the ability to hire the people. They have the money. And, uh, you know, I think they have, again, they have the network effect to to test it and see what works. So I I think this idea that Bank America or J.P. Morgan is going to buy PayPal and somebody's going to buy Block and somebody's going to buy a firm and somebody's going to buy whatever other, you know, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the valuations are too high, and and the regulatory structure just doesn't allow these guys to do that anymore. So, uh, again, it's going to be a build, make it work for themselves, retain customers, build a good mobile platform, make it better, make it better than Square, PayPal, or some of these other guys, and and just, you know, go for it and try to get the customers back. And I think they have the ability to do that. So, Dave, on the bigger banks, do you prefer the ones that have a big capital market slash investment banking franchise like a J.P. Morgan um, or maybe more of a retail, commercial, corporate bank presence like a Wachovia? Well, I think you can own, and I own all of those names. Okay. Uh, for, for that reason, I think I think the most interesting story now, or the two most interesting stories, are Bank America in terms of their ability to, you know, play the retail benefits of, of the growth in, in loans, and then of course have some exposure to the, the very profitable capital markets business now. But I think the other one is Citicorp. Okay. Everybody's talking about Wells Fargo now, and everybody loves Wells Fargo. But I think Citicorp is is in a significant transition. That is, you know, again, they made that sale yesterday. The stock is very cheap. They got tons of capital. They're very profitable. Uh, and, and I think the question is, what is that company going to look like in a couple of years? And I suspect it's, you know, it, it, it's the, the company will look better and the stock will be appreciably higher than it is now relative to book value and earnings. Dave, great to get your picks and your take on the industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Dave Ellison there um, from Hennessy Large and Small Cap Financial Funds. Let's bring in Alex Chaloff right now, co-head of investment strategies at Bernstein Private Wealth Management. And I got a lot to talk about with you, Alex. First off, I was pretty excited about Bernstein is one of the banks that's overweight um, energy stocks. And they're just trading at a huge discount, especially the European energy producers uh, trading at, I think, a 40 percent discount to the stock 600. And forward earnings are so much higher um, than the benchmark index. Do you like uh, oil producers, too? Well, first of all, let me just go back to the beer conversation. Yes. I will see your Pilsner in Prague, and I will raise you a Guinness in Dublin, which I, I still think is the, just the number one beer experience. I mean, I love, I do love Guinness, especially the extra cold, which I think is four degrees colder than the typical tap. And it is different in Dublin than anywhere and else. It's, it's different off. in Dublin. It's a million it's times so better. It's, look, it's a good segue to talk about what's going on in Europe, and you mentioned energy producers. If you want to find the intersection of what's cheap today— and look, you have to look hard to find anything mm. that has a reasonable valuation. 
Europe is exceptionally attractive today on a valuation basis. And there's a dynamic that's going on within Europe that we think is very interesting. It's around dividends. There's been a lot of dividend cuts that have occurred in the midst of the pandemic. And our view is in the first quarter and second quarter of 22, you get reinstatement and you get a pickup in dividends. So some of the energy story revolves around dividends. Yeah. But I would say more broadly, European dividend reinstatement and increase, that's, that's a trade in itself. So, Alex, just generally speaking, ge- geographically, you like Europe more so than the U.S.? Well, more so than the U.S. is is a little bit more than what I would say okay. because look, the U.S. is clearly the most powerful economy. Sure. Uh, even with the inflation readings that we've seen today, there is real strength. There's uh, a strong view that we'll have good growth this year, higher growth in the first half than the second half, but good solid growth throughout the year. Uh, and that inflation, as it comes down, that will allow consumers. Uh, to continue to spend and companies to have expanded their margins uh, over the period. So the U.S. continues to be the market that we want to have the highest exposure to. But look, we continue to maintain uh, uh, a pretty meaningful exposure to foreign markets. And we are circling in pencil, but circling Europe as an opportunity for 22. And what, 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 let's get back to the U.S. I wonder what kind of industry groups you like here. Well, if you look at the backdrop, you've got to start with rates. And as rising rates uh, is a big part of our forecast, not not dramatically higher. This isn't going to be uh, something that's going to overwhelm the market and the economy. But rising rates, very strong uh, indicator for banks. So financials have to be part of the program. If you think about the uh, mid-cycle recovery that we're in from an economic perspective, cyclicals are interesting. Uh, and, and so there there's, continues to be a favoritism around quality and earnings and cash flow generation uh, with that cyclical tilt. But I, I'll tell you, it's no longer this discussion of which one's going to win, value or growth. I think that's an outdated notion. Yeah. And in fact, we'd look at companies that generate reliable cash flows with great visibility into the next few quarters, if not the next few years. So it's it's a little bit of everything. It's a mixed bag. We we favor balance over trying to make a style call, but it's all coming back to cash flow. All right, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. Too short of a visit. We're, we'll touch base with you soon. Alex Shaloff, co-head of investment strategies, Bernstein Private Wealth Management, likes his Guinness uh, in Dublin, which is uh, always makes him a friend of this show. All right, let's talk about 5G. It's rolling out. All things great. Everybody loves 5G. You can be able to download a movie in like a nanosecond. But apparently there's some problem with airlines and planes and, I don't know, the electronics and stuff like that. Let's bring in an expert because I really don't understand that. Diana Furchgott-Roth, adjunct professor at George Washington University, joins us. Um, Diana, thanks so much for taking the time. Can you explain the concerns that the airlines have about 5G? Uh, yes, yes, I can. And before that, I just want to say the best way not to have your car stolen is to have a manual transmission. <laughs> That's a great most point. Most people point. can't buy them. Most people can't drive them. So the concerns are with these devices called radio or radar altimeters, uh, which are navi- part of the navigation systems of planes. And the new 5G deployment 
could interfere with these radio altimeters. So the FAA, which is devoted to keeping aircraft and passengers safe, wants to put in place safety measures, such as not having higher antennas or higher power around certain airports. The problem is that wireless companies such as ATT, Verizon, and T-Mobile paid a collective $94 billion uh, last year to roll out these high-powered 5G systems, and they do not want to be told that they should be dialing them back or lowering the power or not having them close to airports. So that's where the problem is. The FAA has convinced these wireless companies to delay rolling out 5G for another couple of weeks, and then after that, we will have to see what happens. I mean, isn't it kind of binary? Either it's dangerous or it's not. Either there's a possibility that it ruins the altimeter sensors and the plane crashes on landing, or it doesn't. Which is it? So it's not exactly binary. Well, I mean, it is binary, but the problem is that under certain circumstances and in certain planes, it is dangerous. And in other circumstances, it isn't. So it's not all radar altimeters that are affected. Some of them are more tied into the plane's navigation systems than others. And it's not a matter of old ones or new ones. Mm. Some of the older ones cause fewer problems than the new ones because the newer ones do automatic things such as uh, uh, affect the plane's landing gear, for example. So how how is this going to play out here? Is interesting a, and terrifying. It, interesting and terrifying, absolutely, because it kind of feels binary. But it, it is this something that the airlines can fix? Is this something that the telecom companies need to adjust? Do we have to work together? <laughs> is there a fix? Uh, Well, this isn't going to be fixed right away because, uh, as the manufacturers of Boeing and Airbus planes have said, you cannot just swap out one radar altimeter for another. Like, you can swap an easy pass out of your car and put another easy pass in it. These take time to take out. The FAA is committed to keeping passengers safe. That means if they think that there is too high 5G power at one airport, they will ask the plane to be diverted to another airport, or they might cancel that particular flight, which is going to wreak havoc with airline flights. We already have problems with not enough crews and existing delays. This is going to add more delays. How do- it has very high stand. It has very high, very very high standards, and the FAA is going to make sure that everyone is safe. Are they That's higher, Diana? Are they higher than French standards? I mean, how does this work in other countries? Well, five G is already being deployed in other countries, but the U.S. airspace is the most complex in the world, and the FAA holds itself and our aviation sector to the highest safety standards. Mm. In other countries, 5G has lower power levels. It has antennas tilted downward to reduce potential interference to flights. It has different placement of antennas relative to airfields. It has frequencies with a different proximity to frequencies used by aviation equipment. And what the FAA wants to do is have mitigations on the 5G spectrum rolled out here, similar to in other countries. For example, a month ago, Canada just put limits on its 5G deployment. It said antennas could not be pointed up 
They have to be pointed down, and they could not be in certain waves of spectrum close to where the radar altimeters are. This was not a problem I wasn't that aware of, but now I Same. am, and now i got to pay attention to another problem out there. Great. Diana Furchcott-Roth, adjunct professor at George Washington University. Uh, she's been in government uh, before that. Um, she was the chief of staff at the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. Yep, former acting assistant secretary for economic policy at Sweet the office, Department of Treasury. Let's bring in right now Oscar DeBach. He is the CEO of DHL's supply chain. Uh, and, man, the supply chain is incredibly important. I don't think any of us realized nope. until uh, the pandemic how key it is. I mean, it affects everything in markets yep. because this is what's behind inflation. And, you know, most importantly, it affects my ability to buy the car that I want <laughs> or, the, or the truck because they're just not in the lots right now. Um, DHL, however, still gets you your stuff on time, which I know because I use it constantly uh, for shipping. It must be hard, Oscar. You know, all these manufacturing companies are finding it so difficult to get pieces and parts around the world. How much has it affected your business? I mean, is there, you know... An, an average delay for DHL package of a few hours compared to pre-pandemic, or is it unchanged? No, I think, I think the timing is unchanged. We still are able to uh, to meet the timelines and to meet the... Uh, but the thing is, obviously, the availability of products, as you, as you already mentioned, uh, can be an issue. And we can help our customers there by, by managing their supply chains, looking at data, and, and make sure that the forecasting is done in such a way that we... Prepack earlier and and uh, and plan capacity earlier. L luckily, um, we can uh, for our customers um, buy capacity easier, and um, and that helps a bit, obviously, in, in today's uh, very complex uh, supply chain. But it's got to cost a heck of a lot more. I moved to Germany in 2016. I brought a Porsche with me because it was pretty cheap. Hmm. It was a few grand. Now, when I moved back to New York last week, I had to sadly heartbreakingly tearfully leave my 911 <laughs> behind because it just doesn't make any sense with the today's prices to ship it back i might as well just sell it in berlin um how much are you seeing in terms of price appreciation yeah no you obviously see it and i think you could probably sell the porous really well because of the scarcity of cars <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in germany but uh but yeah no that is it but you, you know for, for a fact uh, ocean freight prices have, uh, depending on the freight but obviously have, have gone up four times air freight ten times so it is it is a situation that uh, that we have at the moment uh, we're not yet out of that um uh, i think that is something that gradually during the year will uh, will, will start to happen but it will require um, better planning. It will require uh, better use of data. I think it will also, we, for instance, made, made specific investments also in, in robotics, in data analytics, um, because uh, the availability of people is, is a topic as well. And um, uh, so it, it's, it's important that um, we made the investments ahead of curve and that helped us, for instance, now in the, in the last quarter in, in the U.S., uh, because of the 2,000 robots that we had there to be able to actually still meet the demand in the, in the fulfillment operations uh, um, uh, and still be able to um, uh, um, to attract people um, that we needed for those operations. Oscar, does this call into question the, 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 the supply chain challenges we have? Does this call into question 
just in time inventory that seemed to be you know a, a basic tenant for much of the global trade over the last generation or two is that now called into question given what we experienced over the last year yeah, I would say so. I, th- I think just-in-time is getting reinvented. Um, I, I think what we've seen here is that just-in-time went went a little bit over the top. And then uh, with the, dis- dis- the disruptions that we've had over, over the past year, you can clearly see that it now takes a long time to, to resettle that. So the, the whole definition on how much stock you take, uh, you need to keep, uh, how close to, to the customer you do, do, you, do you need to, steer, to keep the, uh, the stock, how well do you need to be able to forecast, that is at this moment, as we speak, changing. And and only if we start to redefine just in time, then the actual disruption of supply chains will gradually stop. What are you seeing in terms of uh, energy inputs? Paul and I are sitting here, you know, jaws agape watching Brent crude and NYMEX trade north of 80. And I wonder how, how much longer that holds on. So, sorry, can you be specific in the question? No, I mean, we've just seen a massive run-up in oil costs. And, you know, this must be one of the biggest inputs when you're trying to figure out um, your budget for the year. You've got your energy costs. You've got your labor. um, You've got the the equipment that you rent, the the boats and the planes. No, absolutely. So so what do you you think? Does this hold on? So there's a clear, there's a clear, as, as you as you know, there's a clear inflation, there's a clear cost increase that that is happening at the moment, and I, I don't think it's going to go away. Um, what is going to be important is uh, uh, is to, in this case, to help our customers to find ways on, on how we can optimize supply chains. But <clears throat> but the actual inflation, labor cost, energy cost, it is there, as it's there to stay for for um, for the coming period, and we need to make sure that we find ways on how we be more efficient in the way the way we manage our supply chains. What, what about labor costs, Oscar? You know, um, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, the other day said he has never seen such pressure, upward pressure on on wages. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, we do. We do see that because that um, uh, labor cost, specifically in the U.S., uh, specifically in North America, um, the labor cost increase is, is is substantial, and depends a little bit on which state and which which uh, which scarcity there is, uh, but it can can go up to to ten percent. Um, so that is definitely there at the moment, um, uh, and that is obviously driving part of the inflation, um, and that's not going to go away. Um, uh, I actually think that this, as with many of the trends that we see at the moment, those trends actually started already pre-corona, uh, but during the crisis that has actually accelerated it and now has become even more visible. But um, uh, the fact that uh, there is less labor available for uh, for certain type, type of jobs was already a signal that was there before. That's still there today, and that drives actually the cost up. And that's why it's important like what we have been doing, uh, to make the investments in alternative ways, in automation, in robotics, um, uh, because we need to be innovative in, in the way we manage, for instance, our fulfillment centers um, uh, by um, having, uh, for instance, um, forklift truck, unmanned forklift trucks, by having uh, um, uh, picking robots, um, then by having collaborative robotics, meaning that people work together with robots, not replace them, but work together with robots, that actually helps tremendously in uh, um, in solving the issue of not only labor costs, but 
labor scarcity as well. Right. Hey, Oscar, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective here on this global supply chain continues to be a challenge for the global economy. Oscar DeBach, CEO of DHL, uh, managing their supply chain, and certainly the person that I'm sure he gets a lot of phone calls from a lot of his customers saying, where is the stuff? Um, but it's really been extraordinary how the global supply chain's really been challenged here by the the closure of the global economy back in 2020, then the rapid reopening and rapid reacceleration uh, really kind of threw that into disarray for many industries. And we see that across the board. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.